This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Cho Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. Many lives, of course, were lost in building it because there was no machinery or equipment at the time. It had to all be done by hand. Uh, but under the circumstances, it. Uh, is a certainly symbol of what China in the past has been and what China in the future can become. afraid of the new. And quite frankly, Nixon and China is not all that new. It premiered in 1987, when I think four of the six major historical figures were still alive uh, that took, took part in that 1972 historic visit of President Nixon to China. None of them attended the premiere, by the way. Um, um, so it's been around a while. It's been produced quite a bit. It is actually one of the most produced American operas today. I saw it myself at Opera Colorado in 2008 uh, without any preparation whatsoever and absolutely enjoyed it. Got a recording of it, began to get to know it. But, you know, when you're in the position that I'm in and the company decides to do a piece, <clears throat> you study it, you get used to it, you... you dig into it a little bit more deeply. And so what I'm going to do tonight is share some of my reflections about Nixon and China, what it is that I think makes it tick, uh, give you some images that will help you understand the music a little bit better, um, give you things to listen for. But more importantly, just my reflections as a musician uh, about what it is that makes Nixon and China work so beautifully well. So number one... I want to take you back to the 60s. I'm sorry. But let's... <laughs> was it fun for you? Good. Let's take you back to the 60s. A very interesting thing happened in art music by the time the 60s came around. And that was that atonal music, 12-tone music, from the school of Arnold Schoenberg at the turn of the 20th century had really much, pretty much, taken over uh, the world of art music, of concert music, of opera, chamber music. And all of the academies, the schools, the conservatories, the universities, their composition departments were teaching almost exclusively that music. Now, I love all music. I love all genres and styles of music. But there's one thing that this overemphasis 
on atonal music and serial music, as we called it, because these, 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 these pieces of music were built on 12-tone series. It had become so mathematical and so analytical uh, that it left the audience behind. You know the old refrain, where's the tune, right? Where's the melody? Where is something that I can hook my heart on, especially in opera, because opera is an art that touches us so deeply emotionally from every angle, right? And so operas like Schoenberg's own, Moses and Aaron, left a lot of people cold, didn't know how to quite understand it. So this is not unlike other periods of music, like the late Renaissance, when music had become so complicated, polyphony had become so complicated and uh, dense and heavily textured that the people who listened to it could no longer understand the words. And the early Baroque revolutionaries said, all right, we've got to clean this up. We've got to clean music up and make it simpler. Take it back to its origins. And actually, opera was at the, at the center of that revolution of cleaning up music, of simplifying it in a way so that it could be more immediately accessible by audiences. Same thing happened in the 60s. There was a real reaction to serialism, to 12-tone music, and to atonality. And it came from a group of composers that we later called minimalists. Now, the minimalist composers all happened to be centered in New York City. Philip Glass, Terry Riley, Steve Reich. And it was as if they were looking at the academy, the music of the academy, the school music, and, uh, you know, kids writing 12-tone rows and sort of mathematically, you know, planning out their music and plotting it and turning it over to musicians to play and everybody's scratching their heads and not knowing what to do, are saying, let's simplify music. Let's, let's take music and pare it down to its basics. And that's exactly what minimalism was all about. You can connect it, perhaps. You can make a parallel to the visual arts. Artists like Mark Rothko. Artists like Frank Stella. You might look at a Rothko painting and see just a huge canvas of deep blue, simply one color, or one shape, or one line. And you might dismiss it just sort of looking at it in a cursory way. But if you stand there and take the time and look deeply at a Frank Stella or a Mark Rothko, you're hypnotized you're brought in, and you begin to see subtle differences and shades and textures. And that's kind of what the musical minimalists were trying to do, too. So musical minimalism is boiling the art down to its essence, to primary chords, to simple melodic cells, and to an insistent sense of rhythm, a constant pulse this is very tonal music. The music of the minimalists is, above all else, tonal, not atonal by any stretch of the imagination. 
a lot of the use of primary chords, chords that we're comfortable with from the music of the common practice period, and a return of that motoric element, the motor in music, which was very, very important in the music of the Baroque. In the music of Bach, for instance, you hear that motor in his toccatas, particularly like this toccata in E minor for the keyboard. Constant movement, right? Constant pulse, constant activity, like a well-oiled machine. The toccata from that same fugue, a similar instance of constant motor. You, you hear that in the mu music of Bach, of Vivaldi, of Corelli, of Handel. It's always there, that very steady pulse. And even in the slow movements or the slow pieces of any of these composers, you still have that very steady pulse. the motor and that steady pulse begin to disappear. When composers began to search for a sense of suspended time, who does that remind you of? Richard Wagner. That's not to say that all of Wagner is timeless or in suspended time or that there's no pulse. But more often than not, Wagner's sense of pulse is a lot broader and longer, lengthier than other composers. And, of course, it began to strike people that, whoa, this is a, this is a way of freeing up music in, in, in a sense and striking out on, you know, in other territories. I think of the opera Parsifal, Wagner's last opera, as being in a constant state of suspended time. And that, that steady pulse, that motor, is almost gone. Well, compare that to a piece of music by Philip Glass. I'm going to play for you a solo piece by Philip Glass for piano. It's called Metamorphosis Number no. 5. There are five metamorphoses in this collection. This is the last one. <clears throat> it's meant to be repeated three times. I'm only going to repeat it twice, uh, simply because of, of, of the length of the piece. But what I want you to notice is um, the steady pulse, particularly once the eighth notes enter uh, and, we, and we really feel a constant movement, and also the simplicity of the melodic material. It could not be simpler. Pay attention also to the chords that begin this piece of music. They're not dissonant chords. They're not what we think of as 20th or 21st century chords. They're simple, basic chords. 
but he creates a wonderful composition out of these very basic elements. it. Lots of repetition, right? Um, a melodic idea that's repeated a number of times, a motoric idea that's repeated constantly and gives us that sense of insistence and constant movement, and those opening chords. I mean, it all creates a kind of hypnotic effect. Uh, even though the materials of the composition are very, very simple. I hope you'll agree that there's something evocative about that music, that it, it, it's touching. There's something about it, maybe you can't put your fingers on it or describe it, that takes us somewhere else. And of course, that's what music, that's what art should do, take us outside of ourselves and to another world. And it works. <clears throat> So there's nothing dissonant about this music. It's repetitive, it's hypnotic, 
It's evocative, but overall, and most importantly, simple. Not simplistic, but simple. Let's talk about John Adams. When the minimalists, Reich and Riley and Glass, are working in New York, they're about a generation ahead of John Adams. And he's at Harvard as an undergrad uh, and a master's student studying composition. During this time, he's studying composition with two eminent atonal serialist composers. Leon Kirchner, who as a matter of fact was a student of Arnold Schoenberg, and Roger Sessions, who began as a tonal composer, and then in 1946 something happened, I can't explain it, I'm not really sure, but he, he went into serialism in a very, very deep way. So these are the, the folks that he's studying with at Harvard. And as I began reading about Adams, I saw a statement, I can't remember whether it was f- directly from him or, or someone interviewing him and got this information out of him. He would study 12-tone music and atonality during the day in class and then go back to his apartment and listen to the Beatles. <laughs> it sounds very much like the kind of training I had going through music school because I went through it about the same time. We were all terribly excited about what was happening in rock music and the, Be- the Beatles began it all in 1962, right? So these are some of the influences. So here he is studying Schoenberg and Boulez during the day, listening to the Beatles at night. He gets his bachelor's and his master's from Harvard. After graduation, he's given a book by John Cage, the revolutionary of revolutionaries in American music, who was stretching the definition of music for all of us. For all of us. The book is called Silence. The book was given to John Adams by his mother as a graduation gift, and as he says, it worked on his psyche like a time bomb. It really opened up his mind, his brain, and his heart, I believe, to other definitions of music. At the same time, he comes west and discovers California. He ends up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and after a few odd jobs, begins working as a faculty member at the San Francisco Conservatory. While there, he dabbles a little bit in electronic music, which also, you know, loosens up the ears, loosens up his his mind about, you know, where music can go and what it can be made of, um, and becomes the director of the New Music Ensemble. And this is where he begins writing in this new minimalist style influenced by many composers on the West Coast who were doing similar things. He begins to play with minimalism as a musical language, but with the addition of the brilliant orchestration of composers that he admired, like Richard Wagner, Gustav Mahler, and my favorite, Jan Sibelius. He often says... I'm a minimalist who got bored with minimalism. And I like to describe John Adams' approach to these techniques as simply that, techniques that he uses to create his own absolutely recognizable style. It's minimalism through a kaleidoscope or a psychedelic vision. 
Yes, all of these techniques of repetition of small melodic cells uh, and very tonal use of chords, basic chords, primary chords in different positions. But when you listen to a score by Adams, the ear is always picking up something new in the orchestration. There's always, as I like to say, the, the ear is always being tickled in some way. There's always something to grab your attention and to almost take your attention away from how simple these elements, these building blocks of Adam's music really are. He begins to establish himself as a composer with pieces like Shaker Loops, Grand Pianola, Harmonium, The Wound Dresser, which was his approach to an oratorio kind of piece. Uh, It's actually for baritone and orchestra based on the works of Walt Whitman. Um, And The Phrygian Gates, which is a wonderful solo piece that uses many of these minimalist techniques. Now, let's take you back to 1972. I want to change topics just for a moment and think about the significance of Nixon's trip to China. 1971, he sends his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, on a secret trip to China to sort of pave the way. That same year, we had ping-pong diplomacy, right? And there was another American group that was invited to actually have a meeting with Zhou Enlai, the premier. Uh, and so there were, there were a few strings of interest being shown by the People's Republic of China, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai, of inviting the American president, president to visit. This was Nixon's baby. I don't want to be so um, coarse as to say that it was politically driven by the fact that he was running for re-election in 1972. Because I don't think that necessarily would have, by itself, would have gotten in the election. But he really felt, I think sincerely, that this was a thing that he had to do, to open the East up to the West. So indeed, he goes to China, he was indeed met at the airport by Zhou Enlai and by a huge crowd of Chinese people. He actually met Mao, wasn't sure that that was going to happen before he got there. And indeed it happened the first night he was there and had this weird meeting with Mao Zedong. Went to a banquet at the Great Hall of the People. Patricia Nixon, his wife, did indeed tour a factory. She did indeed meet regular Chinese people. She had attended a performance of Madame Mao's ballet, The Red Detachment of Women. In fact, the entire um, uh, U.S. contingent went to that performance. So all of these things actually happen, and all of these things actually happen in the opera. But is the opera history... Uh, like a historical novel is history. This is prescient right now because you may be aware of the, of the debate that may be, that, that, that's going on right this moment about the film Selma, right? 
there are, there are people having huge down and dirty debates about whether that movie takes too much license with the presentation of President Johnson in the film. That he comes off almost as a villain. That there has to be an antagonist in the film and so they sort of make him the antagonist. Well, folks, it's not history. It's not real. It doesn't purport to be history. Neither does this opera purport to be history any more than Verdi's The Sicilian Vespers purport to be history, although it's based on a real historical event. Or Simon Bocanegra, which deals with history and with real people that actually live. Uh, Nabucco. Surely it was about the the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, but there was no Abigaile, right? Um, these other minor characters and, and the, the sort of the triangle, the love triangle going, no, 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 no. no it, these are pieces of art and don't attempt in any way to be historically true. But they present things that are true about human nature, about how we exist in the world, how we think about ourselves. So all of those events are depicted in the opera Nixon in China, but with substantially different content, which brings us to the collaboration itself. How was the opera created? The idea came from the enfant terrible of stage direction, Peter Sellers, who had this vision. He also, by the way, was a Harvard grad, as was the librettist, Alice Goodman. Uh, Actually, they knew each other at Harvard. Uh, John Adams was a little bit before them at Harvard. But uh, the brilliant, brilliant people. And and, uh, Peter Sellers was was doing productions of of things when he was still an undergraduate and, and really calling national attention to himself. He's known, for instance, for doing the three da ponte Mozart operas, Così fan tutte, and setting it in a Brooklyn diner. Don Giovanni, and setting it in Spanish Harlem. Handel's opera, Orlando, and setting it in outer space. He also did a Julius Caesar, a Giulio Cesare, by Handel, and set it as a visit by an American president to the Middle East. And I can't help but think that that was his inspiration in writing Nixon in China. I mean, look at it. The, 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 do I say the triumph of Caesar in Egypt is a real event. It was a real historical thing that happened. But Handel in the 18th century was presenting it as a kind of metaphor for life under George III in England. Uh, but to, to set it uh, into contemporary times in the roiling craziness and violence of the Middle East and have an American president visit as Caesar, this was kind of an interesting concept. Adams saw that piece. I don't believe that was when Peter Sellers first presented the idea of Nixon in China to him, but it certainly introduced Adams to Sellers' very unique style, let's say. It was later on at a music festival where they all happened to be that Sellers proposed to Adams, how about an epic opera about Nixon's visit to China? 
I can hear him presenting this in the same way that we see him in the interview uh, during the HD broadcast of the Metropolitan Opera's production of Nixon in China, gesticulating with his hands and saying very much, this is an opera about contrast. And it is. Think of it. East and West, Dick and Mao, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the vehemently opposed to communism, anti-communist Republican president, and Mao Zedong. We're flinging them into the same room together? Really? Yes. What a contrast. The Nixons themselves. Pat Nixon, whose background was as a schoolteacher. Dick Nixon, right? Well, we know all about him, right? Very insecure on the inside and Everything very big on the outside and, you know, a, a, a very canny, a very savvy politician. They could not have been more different. We hear more and more how hospitable the First Lady was, how lovely she was, how warm she was, how different that is from what we understand as Nixon. Or the contrast of Nixon getting off of the spirit of 76 which is what the presidential airplane was called at that time, and getting off in his suit and tie and walking into a horde of Chinese all dressed in, grab, uh, in drab green. Contrast. The piece is all about contrast. You could call it an epic celebration of contrast. I like to point out Uh, as Goodman herself points out in an essay, that there were often strong disagreements among the creators during the uh, gestation of this particular piece. And they included not only Sellers and Goodman and Adams, but the choreographer, Mark Morris, who was called upon to choreograph this huge second act scene recreating the red detachment of women, that ballet that Madame Mao created. She says, Nixon, my Nixon was not Adam's Nixon. Adam's Nixon was not Morris's Nixon. Uh, My Nixon was not Sellers' Nixon. They all had very distinct and independent ideas about what this piece was. And then once the singers came in, they all had their ideas about who Nixon was, who Pat is. And strangely enough, once it got on stage, it worked like gangbusters. It really ended up being larger than the sum of its parts and being a brilliant epic opera about something that happened within our own lifetimes. That is not an unusual event in opera for opera composers in history to tackle subjects that had just happened. You may not be aware, but the events that happen in Verdi's La Traviata, first of all, really happened, and secondly, had happened within five years prior to the first performance of the work. It is not unusual in opera history, and I know all of us kind of go, the first time we heard about it, Nixon in China, an opera on Nixon in China? What? 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 No, but it, it, it really does indeed work. The music. How does Adam's minimalist style 
communicate this epic story and these characters. And that's what I'd like to get into now. As I said, he uses all the techniques, except I think in a much more interesting and a much more human way than uh, the other minimalists. And the prelude is a case in point. The prelude is about three minutes of orchestral music based entirely on a scale. And not your typical scale, but the natural minor scale, which has a sort of a different sound. That scale is repeated 30 times. 30 times in the orchestra. Now, you might think, you know, off the top of your head, well, that sounds a little too much. But as I said, Adams is always adding something new. There are other elements. Along with this rising scale passage... The same scale is played by other instruments at a slower rate. Which again becomes kind of hypnotic and insistent. But around that, we have other musical events. very high-pitched instrument. I think it's a percussion instrument plays these little bell-like tones occasionally, adding just a touch of color. And the bass. Very slowly changes. But doesn't ever go very far. Now, if I had three hands, I'd be able to really play this and have it be effectual for you. I I can only give you an idea of what this is like. repetition 30 times of that rather interesting scale. There's also that motoric rhythm that I was talking about earlier, that constant and steady pulse, almost like rock or jazz. Here, for instance, is the opening of Act 2, Scene 1. It's very hard to play, so excuse me if there are any mistakes. But um, it's very interesting. It almost sounds like... um, Ragtime, in a way. almost got all the way through it with all the right notes. 
But it just, it just keeps very, very steadily going. And it sets you up hearing a C major chord. And ever so suddenly changes to something else. Uh, and you don't expect it. This is one of the surprises of minimalist music is that it sets your ear up to expect something and then there will be a quick and sudden shift. And, you know, you'll do a kind of a double take. Here's the opening of Act 2, Scene 2, uh, which, again, is, that, is reflective of that motoric rhythm. Consistent, changes suddenly, um, and, and the rhythmic play between what's going on in one set of instruments and what's going on in another set gives you almost a sense of, I'm not really sure where I am. It's, it's really rather remarkable and much better in its orchestration than in the black and white of the piano. Um, all of those things exist in the vocal music as well, and I want to share some of that vocal music with you. Uh, before I do that, I want to make one more parallel to Giulio Cesare by Handel. At the very beginning of that opera, Julius Caesar enters Egypt triumphantly and, of course, sings an aria about it, right? Prestio mai. Now, it's a very short text translated into English. Now let the land of Egypt bestow its palms on the victor. All right? Very simple. Now let the, the land of Egypt bestow its palms on the victor. But listen to the text in English as it's presented in the music and notice the repetition. Now let the land of Egypt, the land of Egypt, bestow its palms on the victor, the victor, the victor, the victor. Bestow its palms on the victor. Now let the land of Egypt, its palms, its palms, its palms, bestow its palms, palms, palms on the victor, the victor. Right? Now it makes absolutely no sense speaking it. (laughs) But emotionally and singing it, it emphasizes all the right things uh, in the music. Now, I'm going to ask uh, our wonderful baritone, Michael Blinko, to sing Nixon's entrance aria. I want you to notice how often some of the words and phrases in this aria are repeated. And I think I'll just let the aria speak for itself and then I'll talk about it on the back end. But notice how words and phrases are repeated either for emphasis or maybe perhaps some other reason, which I'll propose to you. Let's welcome Michael Blinko. News, 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 news. 
that the repetition of the words, particularly news, 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 first, that's, you know, he's excited, right? He's very excited. Has a, has a, has a kind of mystery, mystery, mystery. It's just, all I can think of is this. <laughs> right? Or, yeah, or this, right? That it truly communicates the public persona of Richard Milhouse Nixon that we knew. It's amazingly characteristic music through the use of minimalist techniques and repetition and simple melodic cells that are repeated and that insistent motor underneath. It really, at least to my ear and to my imagination, I see that person who's so blustery and big on the outside, but on the inside is a bundle of absolute insecurity and nerves. I think it captures Nixon, Nixon perfectly. Now, I want to move to Patricia Nixon's aria. This is prophetic. This is in the second act. It's interesting, by the way, how the, how the three acts are structured. Act one belongs to the men. Nixon, Mao, Joe, and Lai. Uh, and there are three scenes. The second act is two scenes. So you see this happening, getting shorter and shorter, right? The second act is two scenes and belongs to the women, to Patricia Nixon and to Chang Ching, Madame Mao. The third act is in one scene and is a kind of Mozart ensemble with all of the major characters seen simultaneously in their hotel rooms or their bedrooms before the U.S. delegation leaves the next morning, reflecting on what happened. It's a fascinating structure and works, I think, very, very well. But Pat Nixon is right 
in the center of it. And we get her visit to um, a factory, a jade factory. We get her visit to a pig farm. We get her exchange uh, between herself and some of the common folk, right? And then she's left alone to sing and reflect on what's happening. And we get this glorious aria. What you'll notice about this this aria as you're as you're looking at the text and, and while our singer is, is singing it, it's much more lyrical than what you just heard. So the lines are almost Italianate. They're almost like this. They're longer, they're softer, they're lyrical, they're romantic. And you will notice John Adams doing things that all the great bel canto composers do. He paints the text. When we get to words like perfume and words like relax, notice what happens in the accompaniment and what happens to the voice. There are certain things that are underlined in the text very subtly uh, by the composer that I think approach Bellini and bel canto. Uh, And it is, I think, a perfect portrait of Pat Nixon. I'd like to welcome Pat McAfee, soprano, to sing uh, This is Prophetic from Nixon in China. Let businessmen speculate further. 
Now, by the way, I should have said, these are just excerpts of these arias. They are, these are not the totality of the arias. They go on a little longer than that. Uh, but that's just rhapsodic and absolutely beautiful by any standard, uh, I think, and, and, and works so well, I think, to communicate the heart and the nature and the character of Pat Nixon, who was so very different than her husband. Is there a duet, you ask? Yes. <laughs> And uh, we're going to sing it for you. Uh, Both Michael and Pat are going to come up and sing this duet, which is actually in the first act. uh, I believe it's the third scene, just before the banquet in the Great Hall of the People. Uh, And the the scene starts out in their hotel room, sort of just having your typical husband and wife banter. You know, we can't even imagine Pat and Dick having this kind of conversation, much less singing it. But they do. And it's a very sort of natural husband and wife exchange. But again, I think Adams really captures the nature, the character of both of these individuals, uh, despite the fact that they're singing at the same time, despite the fact that they're singing in duet. Michael and Pat, come back and let's do this duet. Oh, oh, oh. 
That's just beautiful writing. It's beautiful text setting, text painting. Um, I hope you heard a little bit of jazz, jazz color, jazz chords. And again, the motor was there, but it was a softer motor than we get underneath Nixon's opening aria. It's remarkable to, me, remarkable to me that the more I get to know the opera, the more similarities I see between Nixon in China and older, more established works of the repertoire. I mean, Nixon in China opens with a chorus sung by the Chinese people. Boris Gurunov opens with a chorus of the Russian people. Samson and Delilah opens with a chorus of Israelites, as does Verdi's Nabucco. Peter Grimes, after a very short prologue, opens uh, on, in, in the harbor of Aldeburgh with the people waking up and mending their nets and the women, you know, cleaning and setting things up, storekeepers coming through. I mean, uh, and then the first aria you hear in these operas is by the baritone. Indeed, that's exactly what we get here. The first aria is Nixon's. It is really remarkable how uh, the creators of this opera, not just John Adams, look back also to the traditions of opera, back to the past, and help use those earlier structures of opera to inspire them to create something new. It tells a great story through brilliant music. It has an intelligent and poetic text and an epic nature that's right up there with Aida, with Boris, and other operas of the grand tradition. And I know you're going to enjoy it. Thank you. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.